At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Assembly Required, Building a Case for Church, where we'll see what the Psalms teach us about a life of faith lived in community. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to be back. Thank you for the couple weeks to be able to be with my family on vacation. We had some uh, great times together. I think I broke only two of my children uh, from hiking and camping completely. I only have two children anyway, so the others are uh, they're out anyway. But uh, thank you for that time and, and for uh, your prayers for us while we were away. Uh, kids, if you're watching this morning, if you're over in the commons or if you're here this morning, I hope you have one of these to follow along with. You just saw a video there with Jesus talking about or showing us Jesus praying. And that comes from John 17, where Jesus prayed the great high priestly prayer. And one of the things that Jesus prayed about in that prayer was that we would, he prayed for us today, that we would experience the oneness or togetherness, I'll use the word unity, uh, as a church that, that is found in him. He, he prayed and he said, I ask for those who believe in me through the apostles' word that they may be one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. I love that prayer and what Jesus prayed there for us in John 17, that we would be a unified people, is something that we want to look at this morning. Jesus' prayer for us is really a prayer for the effectiveness of our own mission. It has something to do with about how we live today, where the world sees unity and harmony and love in the church. They have confirmation, visible confirmation of God's love towards them. When the world sees disunity, when it sees enmity and pride and division in the church, well, the world can take the next logical step in their mind and think that God doesn't love them and they can discount God's love and the truthfulness of Christ's mission. This is why Jesus prayed for unity in the church. Much is at stake because of it. The world looks on and they test and they validate the truthfulness of God's claim of love towards the world based on how the church lives in unity together. And so we're going to take a deep dive into Psalm 133 this morning because so much is at stake with regard to mission we're going to look at this topic and this thought of unity in the church. So kids, if you have the coloring sheet, I'm going to help you. There's a, a few blanks in there that I'll give you the answers to. You can follow along with me uh, in that regard. And we're going to look at Psalm 133 this morning uh, as a church family and begin a new series today. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 133. It's uh, Psalm 133. Let me read it for us and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in together this morning. Uh, why don't you stand with me as I read God's Word? Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you that we can gather this morning, and that we can be aligned with what Jesus prayed for us, 
He prayed that we would be one so that the world would know and see the truth of your love for us. And Lord, here in this psalm, you command a blessing upon people that live in unity. So we ask for that this morning, Lord. We ask that your word would correct us and shape us and fill us and form us. We pray today that you would give us grace and that your spirit would take what is yours, your spirit would take your word and that he would work it within our hearts and cause us to live it and to love you and to display your love in all the world. Give us grace and humility now as we hear you. We pray and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, together we ask, amen. And you can be seated. Well, Psalm 133 speaks of the beauty and the blessing of unity among God's people. It, it paints a picture for us of, of life together. What does life look like? What do the people of God look like? What should they be when they are together? We're beginning a new series this morning called Built for More, and we're continuing the series that we looked at and we began just a few weeks ago. These two series work hand in hand because we're going to be in the Psalms still, uh, looking through some of these Psalms about what it should look like, what are the values, what is important for the church to be about and to do. In our first series called Assembly Required, we looked at and we dealt with what it means for the church to gather together. What are the priorities that we should have as, as worship and the word and, and coming for celebration and testimony. But, but this series says, let's take what we've heard about the church gathering together, and let's not just be a people that get together on Sunday mornings, but what does it mean for the church to extend itself and to go out into the world? What does it mean for the church to live in the world and in the community beyond the weekend? What does it mean for us as God's people to live in the midst of the world? And so we're, we're all about what the church is being built for more than just a Sunday gathering. And we want to look in and dive in over the next three weeks at some of these priorities for us as we are scattered, as we move out into the world each week. So what does that look like for us? Well, the question isn't so much should you be a part of the church. Every Christian who has been bought by the blood of Christ, every believer who's placed their faith in Christ is part of the church universally. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian. Christians, people who place their trust in Jesus, are part of God's body. They're part of God's family, the church. And therefore, they should identify with the church formally and locally. They should become members of a local church and say, here's where I'm connected, here's where I'm established. So this question isn't so much, should I join the church or not? What we're looking at is, what does it mean for us? What does it look like? How am I going to live in the community of faith that I'm in? How must we live in order to display the love of God to the world that Jesus prayed for? That he prayed that we would display, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one so that the world may see and know your love. What does that really look like? We're going to look at this and deal with this under this idea this morning of unity. How are we to live out the oneness that Jesus prayed for? Well, I want to work this out this morning from this psalm and three commitments that the psalm drives us to. Three commitments that the psalm says, here's what living in unity, here's what walking in unity really means and what we should identify and, and step forward into. So let me take us to these three commitments. The first one is that we are to come in the family. We're to commit to the family. 
A church is a family. Look at Psalm 133, verse 1. And this is your blank kiddos here. Come in the family, blank number one on there. Come in the family on your notes. Here's what it means, or what, what the psalmist says. He says, behold, this is David speaking, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He, he just starts us with this, this invitation and this, this opportunity for us to taste and to enjoy unity together. Behold how, how good it is, how pleasant it is. These psalms, this psalm in particular, Psalm 133, is a group of 15, is part of a group of 15 psalms. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. These 15 psalms were used by the people of Israel as they went up to Jerusalem three times a year for their corporate worship festivals. And so wherever they, get, uh, get, uh, wherever they journeyed from all over the nation, they would be effectively going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one of the high points in the nation. And as they were going up, they would take these psalms of ascent and they would sing and they would pray them as they got closer to the city to worship and to celebrate. Psalm 133 is the next to last psalm in that section. So as they get really close to the city, they're singing this psalm. You can kind of think of it like mile marker 133. And they know to sing this song. Our family has been on a road trip the last couple of days. We drove from Colorado back home uh, in that. And, and if you've ever been on a road trip, you know what it can be like, especially if you have kids in the car. Uh, my children aren't this way. I don't know why, but they're, they're all deviced up. And so they're, they're tuned into their movies and their games and stuff like that. But but when I was a kid and we went on road trips, it was a constant fight. I mean, between my brother and I, one of us was yelling, uh, are we there yet? And the other one is, I got to go to the bathroom. And, and then you'd hear like, dad, he's touching me and he's on my side. And so you can just imagine as the road trip is happening, there's a lot of disunity in the car. Everybody's tired of being in the car. Everybody's frustrated, hungry, want to get out and stretch your legs. Here, imagine the, the people of Israel journeying up to Jerusalem together, some of them from very far distances. And they're kind of at this breaking point with each other. And then they hit mile marker 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's a reorienting psalm. As we get closer to worship, as we get closer to gathering, this psalm positions them to say, hey, we need to be aligned together. We need to be at unity with one another. We need to be in fellowship and harmony with one another. So the psalm reorients them. More than just a metaphor, though, this is a reality for the church. We are the people of God. We're adopted together into his family. And so as we journey together on the Christian life, as we make this pilgrimage towards the eternal city, towards Christ himself, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we orienting and living our lives as if we are family together? And this is what the psalm calls us to. Now, when the psalmist, when David says how good and pleasant it is, he is telling us this is a great thing. This is a joyful thing. In fact, the word good here is the very word that God himself proclaimed over creation in Genesis 1 when he had finished it, and he saw that it was good. Everything he made was good. And so here is the same affirmation. When there is unity among God's people, when there's, when there's Harmony in that way, it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a pleasant thing. When brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, there is love. And so the scriptures remind us that we are family together. 
This is the first commitment that we need to orient our lives towards to really experience and to live out the oneness that Jesus prayed for, that we are part of each other. Ephesians 2 reminds us that Christ came and he died for us to tear down the dividing wall of hostility and to make us one new family. If you remember in that context, Paul was speaking to the Gentiles and the Jews who were at odds with one another, and he says Christ has died to tear down that wall. In fact, he says this, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The writer of Hebrews even further develops this adopted family identity by telling us that Jesus is not just our Savior, but he's our brother as well. He says in Hebrews 2, for it was fitting that he who, for, for, from whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, sons, their family language, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Because he's died for us. Because he's laid down his life. So you have to think about the desirable outcome that's here. The psalmist points us towards this. You and I want what is good and pleasant. We want what is enjoyable and beautiful. So you have to start with the reality that we must approach one another and commit to one another as family. This is a calling to the best of lives, the best of families. It's a commitment, a covenant that we must make. The church fundamentally is a place where the people of God from different races, from different backgrounds, from different ethnic communities, from different educational perspectives from different economic backgrounds all come together and are one people based not on any of those differences, but based on Christ. That's where we find our family identity, in Jesus. Not in the things that we want to say make us the same. Not like the families of the world that, that revel in dysfunction and fighting and backstabbing and devouring each other, but a better family. We are to commit to being a better family, a place, the church is to be a place where there is true love and nurturing and empathy and caring and healing. The church is to be a place where we are for one another, not just out to get one another. And this is where the first commitment of unity really stands. Are we going to commit to one another as family? To say, you are my brother, you are my sister, I'm in it for the long run with you. I'm in it for your good, for what is pleasant and pleasing for you. I'm in it for your success spiritually, for your growth, for your Christ-likeness. A couple ways that you can apply this is, first of all, if you've been coming to Woodside for a while and you're not a member, you're not formally part of the church family, I would encourage you to take that step. Our next, next Step Pathway course, which is going to help you get on that, it's a formal way of becoming a member at Woodside, is in September. And we would invite you to be a part of that, to join that class, to take that next step and be part of the family. Another formal step, it's a formal informal step, if you will, that's open to anybody, is that you can join a life group. 
You can become part of a, a group, a smaller group here at the church that is connected and committed to your spiritual growth and success and vibrancy in life and to, to serve and to bless and encourage you as you serve and bless and encourage as well and to be connected in spiritual community through a life group. If you're not connected with one of those, talk to Pastor Mike at the end of the service and he can help you get connected to a life group where there is vitality and there is health and help and family for you. But we must commit, first and foremost, to being family together. Kids, you're part of a family. You're born into a family. And that's true for the church as well, that when we trust Jesus Christ, we are born into his family. And that's where unity starts. Not by seeing each other as different or separated, but by seeing us as together, as part of one. So how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, the language here is family language, dwell in unity. But that takes us to the second commitment then. If we're to commit to one another with family, as family, if we're to come in as family, then the second commitment is to come with harmony. But how do we engage one another as family? Are we, are we part of the sibling, sibling rivalry class? Are we in for that? Here's the second blank here, kids. It's come with harmony. Come with harmony. How do we, how do we go after this together? Look again at verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Literally, the Hebrew is when they dwell together. When there is togetherness, when there is oneness. They're in the same place, they're on the same page. This is, this is where the goodness and the pleasantness of what Jesus prayed for is truly found. The profound reality is that Jesus designed the church to be a, a diverse disparate group of people experiencing fresh harmony and unity around him. Not around the things that the world says you should unify around. Not, not politics or sports or education or economics or any of those things or race or class. Those things won't unify us forever. But Christ will. He is the unifying reality of the universe. And so he calls us into this family to experience this togetherness and says, get your eyes on me, get around me, and be about me. You might think mistakenly that, that Jesus had his community and they were all like him, they all thought like him, they all voted like him, they all paid their taxes like him. They were just like Jesus in every way. But I want to remind you just of how uh, different the 12 disciples actually were. They weren't all blue-collar, union-working fishermen with little education. They were a motley crew. And yet Jesus taught and prayed for and showed them what true unity together looks like. He had a diverse mix of political extremism even in the inner 12. One was a zealot, which could be compared to extreme right-wing terrorist group today. One was a tax collector, so a pro-Rome guy in the midst. I mean, imagine those two hanging out and having a meal together. Deeply different ends of the spectrum. And yet there they are together as Jesus is 12 being taught and learned and centered around Christ. Some of his disciples were educated. Some were not. Some were wealthy. Most were not. Some were religiously oriented. They followed the law. Some of them were as secular as you could come and find it. They were so different. But Jesus was in the business of gathering these 12 different, even at odds, people to show them and to teach them his reconciling power of love and grace. He was in the business of taking, Jesus is in the business of taking people that are divided based on worldly ideologies and perspectives and uniting them together in him. 
He unites us in himself. This is, again, what Ephesians 1 talks about. Paul reminds us of this. In him we have redemption through his blood. We're reconciled, we're redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What's that plan? Here it is. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Jesus is about bringing unity, reconciliation, in fact, Paul says this in Colossians 1.20, through Christ, he came through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has done this. He is doing this in the world by his cross. So he, he gives us a commitment on how we are to live together in harmony and unity. Yes, we are different people. Yes, we have different thoughts in our minds. We vote different ways. We are differently educated, even racially different among us. And that's okay. Jesus is uniting us together in him. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Mark of a Christian, he was a 20th century apologist and a philosopher and theologian. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, he calls this the final apologetic. And he states this well. I want to read just a section of this for you this morning. Schaeffer says, quote, I have observed one thing among true Christians and their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians, what leaves a bitterness that can last for 20, 30, or 40 years, or he says for 50 or 60 years in a son's memory, is not the issue of doctrine or belief which caused the differences in the first place. Inevitably, it is a lack of love and the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. These things stick in the mind like glue. And so he goes on and he says, The world looks and it shrugs its shoulders and it turns away. It has not even begun to see the beginning of a living church in the midst of a dying culture. It has not seen the beginning of what Jesus indicates is the final apologetic. Observable oneness among true Christians who are truly brothers in Christ. Our sharp tongues, the lack of love between us, not the necessary statement of differences that may exist between true Christians. These are properly what troubles the world, end quote. So the scripture shows us what the commitment to true harmony is. If the world looks on and sees a group that's at each other's throats, they can't believe, they can't affirm that God loves them. But if the world sees unity, this is the kind of unity that the scriptures speak about. If there isn't any encouragement from Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the scriptures just show us you want humility? Come with harmony. Come with, come with deference to one another. Come with love. You want unity? Well, it's not going to come from politics or, or education or economics. It's going to come from Christ. And he laid down his life for us. So pursue humility. Pursue love. Pursue selflessness. 
When we approach one another with love and humility and self-sacrificial care and kindness and gentleness, then the world sees a church that is utterly distinctive. It's harmonious. It's on mission. So let me say it again. Don't make politics your central rallying cry. Don't make uh, demographics or educational choice or skin color or economic perspective your central rallying cry of your life. Make the love of God in Christ Jesus who laid down his life for you, who humbled himself and gave himself for you. Make the love of God in Christ the harmonious center you work from. And the world will begin to see as we love one another and live out of that harmonious center, a unity that will captivate them, a unity that will transform them. The first commitment that we make is to come in as a family. And the second is to come in with harmony. Not to tear one another down, not to destroy one another, not to be right over one another, but to love one another, to humble ourselves towards one another. And it leads us to the third commitment, to come in and be refreshed. Imagine a church that's refreshing. That's the third commitment here. Verse two and three unpack this refreshment idea. There's a couple similes here. There's two different similes that this uh, David here uses to help us get at the idea of how refreshing true unity is among the church. There in verse two is the first one. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like, so that dwelling in unity together It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Kids, if you want to draw a picture of a guy with a big beard and oil flowing down his hair, here's the perfect opportunity to do that. Think of this. It's just an odd metaphor for us, but it's a really beautiful one. He says this unity is like the anointing oil. This anointing oil is, it marks and identifies someone as belonging to God. When they use this oil, this oil used in Exodus was to set apart Aaron and his sons as priests to the people of God. So when Moses poured the oil over Aaron's head, that oil, it wasn't magical oil. It didn't have any special spiritual properties to it. But it identified before all the people, here is someone who stands to represent you. As the oil fell down on Aaron's head, it was a marker that he was set apart to God. He was anointed by God for the sake of the people. They had, and they saw a brother who was an advocate for them in their place. And that oil signified to them. He's special, he's set apart, but he's set apart for our good, for our blessing. His brother is your advocate and he stands to help you. But we don't anoint pastors or priests today. We don't have to because we have a better anointing oil, if you will. We have a greater oil that sets apart someone for us as an advocate. It is the very blood of Jesus. When he shed his blood, it was an anointing oil to say, here is one who stands in your place for you. Here is one who is a mediator and an advocate before God for you. Here is one who is human, fully like you, and yet completely set apart and fully God as well to stand as a mediator and as a representative He's a refreshment for us. Christ's blood marked him out and set him aside for our good to refresh us, to heal us, to restore us. 
So this oil also under the blood of Christ is a signal to us of our brotherhood and sisterhood together. By faith in Christ, we have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We have been anointed in his blood so that we are to be for one another. We are marked out and set apart for the good of each other. It's a place of refreshment to know that I have you and that you have me together to go before God and to encourage and to build up and to strengthen one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian in World War II who was a martyr for his faith at the hands of Hitler, he wrote in a book called Life Together this. He says, quote, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. So this this simile marks out for us that we have one another. When there's harmony and when there's unity among us, we have each other to refresh each other. I am for you and you are for me and we are there before God together to encourage each other. It's refreshing to know that we have brothers and sisters who are for us, just as Christ is for us, not to condemn us, but to refresh us. But the writer then takes us to a second simile in verse 3. This unity, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, he says in verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, you don't, might not know much about Hermon or Zion here, but Hermon was the tallest, it is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's huge, you can see it from just about anywhere on a clear day. And being the tallest mountain in Israel, the snow melt from it would come down and it would be the source of annual irrigation, annual irrigation to the nation. It would resource the entire land. It would flow into the Jordan River and from there become fertile for the rest of the nation. The snow melt was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 plus inches of annual precipitation and snow. This fresh morning alpine dew was a source of life to everyone in the nation. The last few weeks, I've been in Colorado in the mountains, and I've, and I've seen that, the tall mountains and their snow melt melting down, and the rivers and the streams just being filled with the snow melt, refreshing everything. This is what the writer here compares it to. You see that big mountain? It's a source of refreshment for everyone. You see the church at Unity? It's a source of refreshment and blessing and life. People always have enough ways to be torn down. They have enough ways to be torn apart and shouted down and canceled in this world. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have a good market share on destroying people with our words, especially the people we disagree with. But that's not what the church should be. The people of the church, the people of God's family, God's community, are to be the most refreshing, the most life-giving, the most unified, the most harmonious, loving people on the planet. This is what he calls us to. He says, where that unity is, it's like the tall mountain that everyone can see. Maybe Jesus would say it this way. It's like a city on a hill where the light shines and everybody knows there's life and safety and refreshment there. 
That's how beautiful it is. And notice here how this psalm then ends. I mean, he calls us to this, this refreshment, to be this people of, of harmony, to be people that refresh one another. I mean, how, how much do we desire that? When we come to worship, when we are with one another, how much more do we need to be refreshed and encouraged and built up by one another? Here's what the psalm ends with. It's a profound word. He says, for there. And he's not talking about Mount Hermon. He's talking about among the people of God, where the brothers and sisters dwell in unity together. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Do you want to know where God is at work? Do you want to know where he has stamped his stamp of blessing and approval and life is happening and eternal life is radiating out? Do you want to know where God is smiling upon his people and they are moving out on mission? It's the place where unity is found. It's the place where God's people are together and harmonious and loving one another and serving one another and giving themselves for one another, not tearing down and destroying each other. For there, God has commanded his blessing. The word commanded there is a very strong word. It's like God has said, right there, right at that spot, that's where I want my blessing to land. That's where it's gonna land. He speaks it and declares it and it is so. That's the place that we wanna be. That's the place where life is. If those things aren't there, though, there is no blessing. There is no life. There is no mission and movement. Because the world looks on and goes, I can get that down the street. I mean, I can be a part of any other club and have that kind of dysfunction happening. But where there is unity, God's blessing is stamped and affixed. No unity, no blessing. Unity, harmony, love, humility together. Full blessing, life forevermore. So this raises the question then. What about us? What will we be? Will we be a place where people are picked apart and they're condemned and they're judged, where our words will divide and destroy and shout down and mock others? Will we be a family that's just like every other dysfunctional family in the world, full of fight and hurt and maiming and killing the weak? Or will we be a place where there is refreshment? Will we be a people, not just a building, but will we be a people where there is refreshment, where there is love, where there is sacrifice and deference and humility? Will we be a place that thrives and the world looks on and says, I can't wait to be a part of that. Look how they love one another. It confirms, it confirms God's love for us. How do we get there? On our knees, in love towards one another. We, we take up these commitments and we say, yes, I'll be part of the family. I'll make sure of it. I'm gonna work for harmony and unity and everything. I'm gonna labor to refresh people in the church. We repent and we, we come before the Lord and we pursue him in that. We are built for more more than just gathering on Sunday mornings and getting a nice religious shot of adrenaline. We are built to be the light to the world. We are built to, to display and to demonstrate Jesus' prayer 
that we may be one that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son to rescue the world. That's what we're built for. We find God's blessing upon that when we live in unity. So let's chase it down. Let's chase our unity that we have in Christ down with all that we have so the world might know that we have a great Savior who loves us. Let's pray. Lord, grant to us this unity. We, we acknowledge this morning that it is a gift from you. We need it. Father, we need your grace in this. So we pray, Lord, that you would humble us and that you would cause us not to look to our own interest, but to be a source of refreshment and encouragement and uplift to everyone around us. Lord, where we have brought disunity, we pray for forgiveness and we ask, Lord, to make things right, that you would work among us and that we would boldly and clearly and compellingly display to the world the truth of who you are. Lord, do not allow us to cause the world to question your love by our lack of love for one another, but reinforce to the world how much you love them. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.